For January 24th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 134, a red box in your house. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the left coast of America, where I have come down apparently with a severe case of podcast performance anxiety, that's, <laughs> that's PPA, because this is the third time I'm recording this intro and I just stumbled over another word. I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here with the panel to overthink all manner of things, but... Uh, if you didn't uh, know it, we celebrated our third birthday on OverthinkingIt.com this week. January 22nd, 2008, we pushed five or six articles live. Uh, they were there were um, a couple of like humor pieces. There were a couple of like link pe- link posts because the you know uh, in fact on the first day I think there was a link to the I drink your milkshake sound file from There Will Be Blood and There Will Be mm-hmm. Blood occupied a lot of time uh, you know in the early days of overthinking it. Um, the the way I don't know a year later the Dark Knight or a year and a half later the Dark Knight would come to, um, you know so you can go back it's uh, overthinkingit.com slash two zero zero eight slash oh one slash two two right it's the date backwards um, to see uh, or in in machine format or what have you uh, to see those posts not all of those le- we don't do a lot of link posts anymore you know. Uh, we may actually in the future get back to that, um, but uh, hey, we celebrated our third. Uh, we celebrated our, our third birthday. How'd you celebrate, panel? Uh, coming <laughs> from the Boston, the Greater Boston area, it's Peter Fenzel. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? I am all right. I've apparently uh, recovered from the bout of mushmouth that I had the first two times we tried to record this podcast. That's good. That's good. Just think about baseball, and you'll be able to get through it just fine. No worries. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I'll get you a towel. <laughs> so, so I actually spent a uh, an evening this weekend just watching movies. On Netflix for the first time, on Netflix streaming, which I'd never used before. Is it not uh, the most awesome thing in the world? It is pretty crazy. It's like having a red box in your house. It's such, <laughs> such a temptation to watch terrible stuff. <laughs> Pete, I'm glad you've gotten over your performance anxiety and able to stream. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, all I did was wear this, this ionic magnetic bracelet, and all of a sudden, all my streaming problems If you've been live streaming, you really ought to see a urologist, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> well, fair enough. Well, I've opened the gates and I've let loose the torrent. Uh, not torrent. I'm torrenting. I haven't been doing that, um, but I'm trying to gradually, gradually increase my level of technical participation in the culture that I, I like to participate in. Uh, you know, non-technologically or to me varying degrees as well. So, um, so there you go. So that that's uh, that's what I've been up to. That's how I celebrated. Is I just took a, an evening with pop culture. It was a fun time. Excellent. Mr. Mark Lee. I celebrated overthinking his birthday in the company of two overthinkers, Mr. Stokes and Belinky, for a social event. And we, we did what we always do. We, we talk about pop culture with each other. Uh, one subject of which was the book Zombies vs. Robots. 
which was, was curious to me because obviously sort of in, the, in that battle, I mean, we're for years debating who was going to win that one. But uh, with the sort of main problem being that, well, zombies eat flesh and robots are not of the flesh. So the jury was definitely out in terms of who was going to win that battle. Really? I say robots every, uh, I say robots every day. Robots versus zombies is the question. Like, yeah. who would win? Robots, right? I think the ro- yeah, I think the robots have to win because um, the zombies don't want to eat the robots, right? Are the zombies even going to be aware that they're fighting the robots? Like, how is that? How is that the case? Guys, guys, robots' claws are strong because they're made of metal, <laughs> and they eat old people's medicine for food. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Glad someone got that. Of course, it's difficult to say whether the robots or the zombies are going to uh, last longer than the other because the mechanisms by which each of them are powered don't obey any reasonable physical laws, right? Uh, zombies, the human body can't function without food and water. It can't function without sort of living uh, neurological and, and muscular and skeletal systems and all the other stuff. The integration of the body systems are necessary for movement, and zombies don't have any of these things. So even though we have this virus or whatever or occult thing that animates them, um, there isn't really a scientific notion for, for how they're able to continue to persist and walk around without eating regularly, like every day or like at least every couple of weeks. And then robots, in turn, um, they often have sort of like, you know, little tiny fusion reactors in them or whatnot, which, of course, seems terribly dangerous and not very practical at all for, uh, for industrial workers or, or domestic servants to have like – each of them have an individually have a bomb in it that's capable of destroying like 20-mile radius. You're referring so, to uh, Terminator 3, right? The little, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where the he's power like, unit oh, that the Terminators have inside of them? Exactly, exactly. Like, like if you think about a world like iRobot, where the robots are all walking around all the time, and there's lots and lots and lots of them, uh, if they all are Terminator robots and they each have, like, a little nuclear bomb inside of them, like, that just seems, like, that just seems down the pale. Like, I would not, I would not accept that. I don't think that that's acceptable. So... Since you're just sort of then relying on kind of suspension of disbelief without a thorough scientific explanation for why the zombies and robots continue to persist, then you have to say, okay, well, what are they metaphors for? Like, what are they representing culturally? And then are those cultural forces in a position where one would uh, supersede the other? And I do think that zombies are generally associated with the alienation that came upon humanity after industrialization and modernity. Like, you don't hear of a lot of sort of agricultural zombies, and zombie narratives went through this change in the 20th century between being primarily about voodoo and racism and to being about this sort of like critic critique of modern consumerist society and robots are of course like a metaphor for industrialization that comes out of like eastern europe and poland and germany and uh, russia and like and the ideas uh, of sort of becoming greater than yourself by the ideas of like futurism and and industrialization and robots and metal and all these other things so it seems like zombies can't really exist without robots like like robots are older than zombies in the way that they exist currently in our culture and that if the cultural forces that that underpin robots were to fall away, thus causing like our fictional robots no longer to work, uh, I feel like by necessity, zombies would also fall away, right? Because they're dependent upon the lifestyle that's made possible by the industrialization that the robots represent. Right? So I would, I would bet on the robots, because I think the robots come before the zombies, and the robots will keep going after the zombies are gone. Or when the robots die, the zombies will die soon after, and it will be a Pyrrhic victory. Um, and in that case, you know, who wins but, you know, the giant alligators, sharktopuses, sharktopi? <laughs> Whoever's left at the end, whoever's left standing, the Shark cockroaches. To, uh, Sharktopodes. 
Yeah, sure. The shark uh, TikTok. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So there's my there's a little longer rant for the question. Even my response then is usually offered, but there you go. Take that as a bonus. Here's my smile present to you on this. Our the third anniversary is the rant anniversary, right? <laughs> Where you like <laughs> you rant somebody is like, This is why you need to close the garage door. <laughs> like, happy anniversary, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Happy anniversary okay. to you. John Parrish, yep. also in the Greater Boston. Oh wait, Mark, that was your um that was your answer that Pete just gave, right? <laughs> oh, my, my answer to how I celebrated overthinking its anniversary was discuss was hanging out with Stokes and Belinky and talking about robots versus zombies. So, uh, well, Pete just basically, you know, was was became became a part of that conversation. Well. What was we wish we wish you were there, Pete. Well, what what did your conversation come to? Like, what conclusions did you guys reach? Oh, we didn't we didn't quite we didn't quite get there. We just kept drinking. Oh, fair enough. Fair. So enough. I guess in that sense, then we didn't really. Um, we didn't really honor that spirit over overthinking it too much because we didn't dive too much into the subject matter after it came up and just kind of moved on to something else. Being Jordan's delicious risotto, <laughs> this is a topic of podcast discussion in the past. This is true. Mm, <laughs> John Parrish is in the greater Boston area. What up? What up? What up? So our third birthday being what? Saturday? Sunday? Technically Saturday? Well, I, I was doing the same thing either day. I was uh, probably playing through the original Mass Effect for the Xbox 360 because I, I just got my hands on Mass Effect 2, but I've been playing through the first one in the meantime. And Mass Effect is an interesting game for overthinking because like a lot of BioWare's action RPGs, it has this really intricate, detailed setting behind it such that given the difficulties in gameplay in the first series, I would almost rather read a novel set in the Mass Effect universe than actually play the video game. Because <laughs> they, they go in all this into detail of various alien cultures and technology. And it, and there's obviously some pseudoscience in there, but it's, it's detailed pseudoscience. It's got good verisimilitude, if not realism. And it's just absolutely fascinating stuff. And then you get in there, and it's just this incredibly steep difficulty curve and very tough to optimize you know, character development, and there's a lot of weird loading times and stuff like that. It's like, ah, why can't I get to the exposition? <laughs> <laughs> what is the actual mass effect? Is it about, like, gravity and the distortion of space? Uh, sort of. Pete, there's, I, yeah. got your, I got your mass effect right here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I that is the answer. It. No, sorry. <laughs> no, it, it, there's, this, there's this hand-waving element called element zero, and when it's charged with some particular electrical, you know, electrical wave, then uh, it can distort mass around it such that it can reduce something to near zero mass, which means that at light speed, it's, you know, velocity becomes nearly infinite or it can, ex or it can increase something's mass. And, you know, and then it becomes an incredibly powerful, uh, powerful, you know, explosive or firearm or something like that. And yes, that is, that is the mass effect. I gotcha, I gotcha, I gotcha. I'm trying to think, is there like a, isn't there like a Marvel superhero or something who can do that? I guess it's the blob, right? That's just the center of gravity. <laughs> That's not nearly as much fun. The Mass Effect isn't like, you can use your fat as a weapon. Well, <laughs> well, was, was, that, was that Speedball? Could Speedball do that? Or am I thinking of someone else? Or what, what, That's John or Belushi, right? Isn't that what John Belushi did? Or is that... <laughs> <laughs> no, John Belushi did Speedballs. Speedball did not do John Belushi. The, oh, okay. the, importance, the importance of proper <laughs> uh, conjugation of verbs, people. Don't let, yeah, those verbs go un, don't let those verbs go unconjugated. 
it's dangerous for us all. No, yeah, absolutely. word order matters in English, especially when talking about drugs and flash fiction. <laughs> so, <laughs> absolutely. Well, pay your verbs a conjugal visit. A uh, you know a public. <laughs> Public service announcement from John Parrish. I uh, celebrated overthinking its birthday by watching uh, a uh, masterpiece of cinema called Spaceballs. Uh, Ooh. Yeah, it was really really nice. You know, my girlfriend had Mm -hmm. never seen Spaceballs. And, uh, you know, and like uh, like Pete says, Netflix instant streaming, it's like having a red box in your house. Uh, (laughs) I I I was very um uh I I was very glad that uh President Whitmore understood the power of the Schwartz you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> by the time you know by the time that I just I, was it just me I got a lot of stuff uh in that movie a lot of the sex jokes that I didn't get when I was you know 12 or 13 and they're not um they're not the most sophisticated sex jokes in the world. <laughs> right. I'm saying it's about on the level of the uh, of the masturbating monkeys in History of the World Part One, right? Um, right. It's it's at about that level of highbrow lowbrow on the highbrow lowbrow continuum, and, and yet still, perhaps I lived a sheltered uh, life in my early years because I, I didn't get a lot of it. But um, you know, I see your Schwartz's as big as mine. You know, the Schwartz is in you, Lone Star. It's in you. Like, uh, th- there were a lot of things that, that became clear to me on a, on a, uh, a second viewing. And it was, um, it, was fu- it was funny. Oh, also the Druish princess stuff, which is a little mean-spirited. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> right. yeah. you, you, you didn't get that? I mean, there's, there's a sequence where John Candy turns and looks right at the camera and says, funny, she doesn't look Druish, which I figure is... <laughs> Is is kind of nailing it on the head for anyone in the audience who was sleeping through the first throwaway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's why she has the nose job, right? And it's like because <laughs> she because she had like her original nose. It's yeah, like we're pretty- gonna we're gonna. That was the torture that was that they threatened to inflict on her. We're going to undo her nose job and give her the nose back that she had. She's already yeah. had a nose job. It was a present for her sweet sixteen. <laughs> now it is funny though that that Perry air you know did come out eventually. Right. Like that was a big thing in the mid aughts. Right. The oxygen bars, because um, they have those cans of, of air in Spaceballs that President Scrooge sniffs because they're running out of air on, in the Spaceballs planet. Right. Um, so that is kind of uh, that's kind of prophetic in its own way. Wait, there was really a Perrier branded bottled oxygen. Not in real life. I don't think it was Perrier branded, but there was a Perrier branded bottle of oxygen in Spaceballs. It was in cans. Right, right. I remember. That. Uh, oh, oh, you were going from oxygen bar, or you're going from Perrier to oxygen bars. I thought you were going one further, and like, no, Perrier cashed in on the pun. They really should have. I think that they probably could come up with something. There but, were uh, like, if you went to an oxygen bar, I went to one once, and there were scented oxygens at the oxygen bar, right? Like, you know, I, I don't understand. Just, I mean, what's the point of the oxygen bar? You can stay up dancing in the club longer? I think so, because it, it definitely has a, a psychoactive effect to inhale pure oxygen. Right, right? It, like, it, like it, keep, it keeps you up. There's a, right, Vegas casinos are rumored to pump you know, pure oxygen into their, uh, into their windowless um, pleasure palaces, right? Yeah, and not just Vegas. I think it happens in other places, too. The air quality in casinos is always a little bit – it's very highly uh, monitored and, and very difficult to uh, 
very difficult to, to sort of know exactly what's being done to you when you're in one of those environments. Uh, you know, it's kind of, you give up a certain amount of control when you go into a casino, which is, I don't think, the way that people like to think about it. I think they're bringing the control to the casino, not like your biological systems are being manipulated by the people who work here, I such once, that you will give them money. So once in Vegas, I saw Jackie Gleason do a... Um no, Jackie Mason, who's a totally different guy from Jackie Gleason. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what is in this Costco branded store brand beer? Um, I saw Jackie Mason do <laughs> to the moon, Alice. <laughs> Pure oxygen. Uh, do a um, uh, speaking of Druish princesses, I saw a uh, Jackie Mason do a, a comedy concert, and he, um, you know, like laying it on a little thick, uh, walked up to a, to a blonde couple in the front row, and it's like, hey, have you ever seen a Jew before? Here's your chance. Um, and, he, and he made a joke about this. You know, he said, whenever I talk to anyone about, about Vegas, uh, they, they always introduce their visit to Vegas with uh, an amount of money that they're going to lose. Hey, yeah, I'm in Vegas to lose $500. Hey, yeah, I'm in Vegas to lose two grand. You know, that's how much I have to lose this time. And that's like the defining characteristic of their visit to Vegas. But whenever you ask anyone how their gambling is over the course of their life, they always say, meh, about even. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I don't have his delivery. <laughs> <laughs> you, I don't, I don't, you, I don't you think Nazi people... bastards. That was his other joke. When a joke didn't land, he would say, "You Nazi bastards." So he Godwins himself. Yeah, violating Godwin's law of stand-up comedy. <laughs> Though there is no Godwin's law of stand-up comedy. I, de- I definitely think that that Jackie, as a comedian, uh, the jokes of Jackie Chan don't necessarily translate well to other people telling them, um, <laughs> <laughs> or Jackie Brown either, or Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Sure, jokes don't transfer at all. A lot, a lot of ethnic humor from Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, I'm, I'm fascinated though by that. Aren't you like uh, like the environmental design of Las Vegas casinos and? Um, you know, and of Disney World and of, you know, any like really at Universal City Walk or, you know, any really uh, heavily designed environment where the goal is yeah, to one part, of, part you from your money, right? One of the things I noticed in my last visit to Vegas was, you know, the new casinos were very overstimulating. You're constantly bombarded by sights, sounds, weird aerial textures coming from all directions. And I stay at the MGM Grand. It was a little dizzying at first and of course the point is to keep you constantly adrenalized and you know awake and alert and ready to move and act and do things and i was exploring just walking up and down the strip with a few uh, with a friend and we checked out a few casinos uh, among them caesar's palace and when i went in there i immediately felt much more relaxed Mm. and i wondered hey what i wonder what the difference is i wonder what's the distinction and i realized that in caesar's palace which is one of the older casinos on the strip the ceilings are a lot lower so your sight lines are a lot lower uh to the ground you can't you can't see you know 100 yards in every direction and the sound isn't bouncing off of these cavernous ceilings and coming back at you so you feel like you're in a much more contained space and you don't don't have to constantly be darting your eyes around to evaluate new things. Mm-mm-mm. That's I think that's one of the more interesting consequences. I think when people look back on like the architecture of our age, right, and these overbuilding that happened during the housing boom mm-hmm. and the, the building boom that happened over right, the right, right. last couple of decades. Um, I mean, I remember reading 
what this always reminds me of uh of Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe stories and and in particular of uh the big sleep one of the early scenes in the big sleep where he describes like walking into the mansion of this rich family in California uh where the ceilings are so high you know it's almost as if like they're buying the air right like they're they're displaying that they can afford to have all of this air inside of their house uh this sense that I get when reading these descriptions of these like you know huge uh, entryways and I definitely get the sense from being even in much more casual spaces that were built more recently that we want to sort of enclose this giant volume of, of, of area or of this giant volume of, of, of gas <laughs> um, that people can walk through. Um, and, and, and it's not always the, it was not always the case. It's certainly not the most efficient way to build something. Uh, it's maybe not the safest. It's, it's, it, it definitely becomes really uh, expensive to heat and do all these things for it. it. It's from an environment in which like capital is loose and people aren't thinking about the longer term consequences of having to run an organization. Right. And like, um, I mean, I worked in the theater for a while. And we would do research on why theaters failed. And one of the big ones is they would they would raise money to build fancy facilities, and they wouldn't uh, raise money to operate them because nobody it's not as sexy to give money to pay the electric bill as it is to give money to get a bathroom named after you. Um, so, yeah, yeah, or a yeah. Wing, I mean, I, w- you know? I was working in a nonprofit organization that did a huge, uh, you know, many tens of millions of dollars building project while I was there, and. Um, it turns out that you know operating this enormous edifice that you have built because you have an edifice complex. Uh, Nazi bastards. Um, the uh, yeah, no, that was that was terrible. <laughs> the um, uh, the operating budget like quadrupled, and no one was no one was prepared for that. And these were you know these yeah. were presumably professionals with many decades of experience in in the nonprofit administration field, and they were total yeah. idiots. Um, this is the thing about life. This is a very encouraging thing about life uh, that I I offer to all of our listeners. No one knows anything. It's not just the entertainment <laughs> business. Everyone's an idiot. And uh, they're probably – like if you, uh, if you um, stumble across a problem and you think, no, someone's, someone's thought of that, right? And they're working on it. Chances are they haven't thought of it and they're not working on it. Or even if they are, they don't have a good solution. So if you have, if you have one, you know, send it. Write an email and send it to the, uh, the appropriate party, right? Hey, you may yeah. even get a job out of it, which is not nothing in this economy, right? Well, Fenzel, Fenzel, you were talking about the the after effects of the housing bubble collapsing, and you know all this all this overdevelopment that is is starting to fail. And, and there's a there's a particular news item this week that I don't know if everyone saw, but uh, it, it goes to it's sort of related to Vegas in that it's you know a massive urban center in the middle of the desert where no urban center should belong. I'm talking, of course, about Dubai, which oh was, yeah. Which was very, which was very heavily developed, you know, following the the oil, you know, the oil boom and the housing boom, and is now starting to be underdeveloped to the point that this week uh, there was an arc, a man-made archipelago chain off the off the coast of Dubai, uh, a, a chain of islands that were shaped to look like uh, to look like the world, to look like you know the the continents of the world, you know, and they're now starting to erode. So this, yeah. this man so being washed away. Yes, this man-made chain of world islands, which are, are now nearly, which are nearly empty, of course, because no one followed up and invested in them, is now slowly sinking into the sea, and uh, and yeah, there's there's really not the capital to to save them. So, I mean, we, we talk about we talk about architectural hubris, but I think this is really both the the absolute peak of architectural hubris, i.e., remaking the world in your own image. 
and an almost perfect metaphor for how arrogant that is and that, you know, years later, no one's bought into it and it is now sinking back into the sea. Mm-hmm. Are, are we sure that this wasn't like planned as part of an accurate representation of what's happening to the planet? As the oceans rise and swallow up the land. No, I, I think I told, and I think that to tie this back into what you were talking about with Mass Effect uh, a second ago, you talked about, I think one of the intellectual activities that we really like to do, both culturally and professionally, and it's one of the things that connects our, our gaming culture, our fictional culture, and our professional culture, is that there's a lot of people who like to spend a lot of time and energy optimizing things and like calculating the optimizations and fiddling with things and turning the dials and trying to figure out what the best way to do something is, right? And this is a lot of this is done by committee, a lot of it is done over time, uh, a lot of games work this way. Um, and one of the, the problems with uh, this kind of building is that you have a limit, once you invest such in such a hard asset you have you have a limited ability to change the fundamentals of your situation and continue to optimize it right so like caesar's palace is going to have low ceilings um the cost of installing higher ceilings is really significant right like the idea that they would have to knock down the building and start over is a huge expense so that keeps people twiddling the dials a little bit but it also i think makes people emotionally uncomfortable um like like solving this problem so like so like looking at the dubai situation looking at the situation with overbuilding in 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 the states and elsewhere where it's like well what do we do? Do we do we bulldoze these areas? Like like are people going to be buying this undervalued housing anywhere? Like I think people are uncomfortable with things that they can't tweak, right? And so it's it's very hard for them to recognize value in the absence of control uh, in this day and age. I think I think there's definitely like a a, a sort of psychosocial uh, connection to this uh, this idea of like uh, of like I can I can turn the dial on this. I can make subtle adjustments to this. I want everything customizable. I want I want to be able to make things the way that I can make them, which doesn't necessarily always work. And and that when there are institutions that don't work this way, like say like the employment situation in a city, which if you which in, with which like the fiddling of it can in and of itself be like a destructive act, right? Like you lay a bunch of people off of one thing and then you try to retrain them and do them in another thing. And like in the meantime, like there was a period of time where they lost their jobs and it wrecked their families and they don't have you know they can't pay their bills and like it's really hard to get people culturally back in these things um i mean i know people are trying it's good work to do but it's tough work because fiddling with kind of that kind of hard building is tough um and i think when you're in a video game and you don't have that that degree of fine-tuning able you can't do that uh and you're stuck uh using sort of broader strategies and without the sort of fine control it can be very very frustrating well, to put it in my, to bring it into my wheelhouse for a for a second, it's it's what they call and well, actually, it's in Pete's wheelhouse too because as soon as I mention it, he'll recognize it. it's what it's what's called in economics the sunk cost fallacy. Oh, the well, idea, yeah. Yeah. The idea that you know, having invested some money in a project, you know, if the project looks like it's going to fail, we can't we can't just abandon it because you know we've invested this money in it, and you know we can't just walk away from it. Whereas there's really, if we're thinking about it in pure economic ration, rational thought, which people rarely do and for good reason but if we're thinking about it purely rationally that having invested money in something in the past is no reason to keep investing money in it in other words just just because you've paid for something in the past doesn't mean you should keep paying for it in the future if it's yeah. if it's a bad investment there comes a point where you have to stop throwing money at it yeah i think i think that this also uh, comes up in almost any video game, like a role-playing game, where you have to buy supplies without knowledge of what's going to happen to you over the course <laughs> of the game. Because, like, we've all been there, and we've all like finished the game, and you've got like a bazillion potions of like of like healing of like loss of vision, like like eye drops. You've got like seven hundred eye drops that you're presumably <laughs> carrying around in like in like a sack, 
right? It's got like a Visine logo on it because you got it from the pharmaceutical distributor. <laughs> and you're like carrying around all your eye drops and you're like shield of proof against lightning, which of course, like you in the rare situation in which you might be able to use it, you will not have the opportunity to equip it, nor like the need to do so because the other stuff you have will work just fine. Um, but we, when we set up these large projects, which become the sunk costs, right? When you build the Dubai world, you're basing it off of projections as to what you think is going to happen in this thing, right? So you build the Dubai world project with the idea that X number of people are going to invest X number or Y number of dollars into it. It would be weird if X number of people invested X number of dollars with it and that was fixed because that, that, that would be interesting. Well, that'd be, <laughs> that'd be, like, that'd be, like, uh, that'd be like Groupon, you know? Yeah, exactly. 1,000 exactly. people buying something for $1,000. Exactly, exactly. But, but once you, you know, when you're calculating how much money to sink into these projects, these people get so fixed on optimizing what you're doing that um, you don't leave uh, enough of a realistic attitude about how the future actually works, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to build the Dubai world thing and I'm going to end up with like 50 bazillion more healing potions than I need because it's just gonna, <laughs> it's not, not going to be necessary. Like, well, um, your, your, point about, your point about investment in, in role-playing games in particular brings me back to Mass Effect, mm-hmm. which as, as a Bioware RPG, I think is mirroring a trend that was really started with World of Warcraft, which is the in, incredibly detailed, one might almost say excessive, uh, regimentation of the stats that an item will help with. If you're playing World of Warcraft and you pick up you know, a particular item, it will break down in very specific terms of like percentages and seconds the benefits it, it uh it conveys to you like, you know, this will this will throw a fire effect on an enemy that will do 17 points of damage per second for five seconds, et cetera. And then you can sit down and weigh like, all right, is this worth something that is, you know, is this for something that has a 50 percent chance of doing 30 points of ice damage to an enemy uh, per second for six seconds and things like that? Or, you know, in the cooldown times, the refresh times and things like that. Uh, and Bioware's RPGs, which aren't meant to be played online, but things like Mass Effect or Dragon Age, which came out a couple of years ago, are very similar in that they they break down the they break down the the numerical values of their effects very explicitly. Like as you're bought, as you're scrolling through the equipment screen to to buy them or equip them, and I, th- I think that's that that's a virtue of again, Pete, you you brought up with that desire to fiddle, that desire to to Mm. play with and and maximize the dials and to remove that uncertainty. Because, you know, as as more and more stuff becomes available, players are less likely to be comfortable with that feeling of uncertainty that, you know, well, is it worth buying the, you know, nuke spell in Final Fantasy, which, you know, has a percent chance of killing a bad guy instantly, but I don't know what that percent chance is and the answer of yeah. course now that we've now that we've cracked open the the original 8-bit final fantasy cartridge and reverse engineered the algorithm the answer is no it's never worth it to buy them <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's chances of killing an enemy instantly are almost insignificant and by the time you reach the enemies it can kill you'll have better means at your disposal to do so but we didn't yeah. know that at the time yeah well, and the other here's another here's another section of it because there's a, a large group of the people who play the game who are never going to know that even if the information is available. And the games are designed with these people in mind, right? So, like, there I think people want to have that feeling that they're fiddling with something. But as Matt said, people are terrible at things, and, and like nobody really knows how it works. So most of the people who play the game <laughs> want the sense of control you get from fiddling with the stats of their characters, but they also don't want to have to fiddle and optimize the stats of their characters for reals in order to get through the game. 
right? So they get a lot of leeway to progress through the game the way that they want. And this is what separates kind of hardcore raiding World of Warcraft players who really need to optimize their characters from the ones who are going out there just to have an adventure. Um, and this is why we don't just have math numbers, you know, math numbers, right? Um, what other kinds of numbers are there? Why we don't have this mathematics associated with the, with the weapons. They also have names and they have flavor and it's for easy remembering and it's so that you can make choices intuitively based on your emotions and still play the game and enjoy it. Because in the end, these are products that are being sold because people want to enjoy them uh, and because people like believe that if they buy them, they will get a certain enjoyment factor. And if the game isn't fun, even if it's a better exercise in optimization, um, it's probably not going to do as well. Uh, so, yeah, so, so I think I think this one, one of the things you run into a lot, a lot with this is, um, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm thinking about. I'm thinking. I'm thinking about when well, you know I play Magic cards sometimes, right? And it's like uh, so many of the cards that come out are never, ever, ever useful in a serious optimization of the game, like ever, to the point where the relative cost differential between the good cards and the bad cards is just enormous. When like you can tell which cards are like actually good by which ones cost four times as much, at least. Um, and, and I mean, this isn't always strictly the case, but it's the case often enough. Um, but of course, as somebody who doesn't want to spend a ton of money on it, you're like, well, maybe I can try this other thing. And like, maybe I'll figure this out. And it's like, no, you're not gonna figure it out. Like, like you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You can fill with the dials, but you're not actually going to solve it. Um, but you'll get that sense of satisfaction, which I think just points to the idea that people like this feeling of optimization, but maybe they don't actually like doing math all that much, which is maybe what, yeah. Do you think that speaks to games reaching to a particular audience? Because, you know, there are certain people, certain very technically minded gamers who, who love that sort of number crunching. Yeah. And, but then the, the audience for video games has grown massively in the, you know, the 30 years that video games have really been around to the point that you get casual players of, of games like the, the Madden series for, uh, for, for NFL football or right. games like Halo. And there's, you can do some optimization for Madden, like all the players there have numerical stats, and you can do some real crunching there and, and find out an ideal team. But I would wager that a lot of the players, a lot of the, the human players who play Madden, don't care as much about the numerical stats of their players and are just picking based on who performs better in the game and who they recognize in real life. Yeah. So, you know, oh, you're always going to get Randy Moss on your team or, you know, oh, got to have Tom Brady as the quarterback, even though, you know, you could make the argument that Tom Brady is is starting to reach his peak, if not slightly past it, et cetera. But, you know. Yeah. I mean, my feeling about it is that um, it is very much to the benefit of the video game companies for the video games to be robust in their optimization most of the time. And they're like optimization schema such that if you are a hardcore player, you can put in the extra work and actually sort of solve the game. And the reason for this, I think, uh, goes to a sort of um, Malcolm Gladwell-esque notion of how these products are sort of uh, how word of mouth spreads and how these products flow through the marketplace and how trends pick up and how uh -huh. fashions change. And this idea of nodes and social networks, right? That like it's not just a matter of telling if you if you have the ability to tell like fifty people about some thing that you're selling, the fifty people you pick is going to be really important because it's not the same. Like like you tell one person, that person's going to be really connected, and if they like it, they're going to tell a lot of people, and then that person influences people, and that person is important that they're in the know about what's going on. Um, and I, and those people do so much of your work for you in marketing video games that that to do it with 
without their help is just prohibitively expensive, right? Like you have to you have to get. This is why reviewers still matter, not necessarily because people care about the quality of movies, but because you want people that you don't have to pay to tell a whole bunch of other people and convince them that they should buy your product, right? right. Like you, you need the advertising, and so in the gaming communities, um, the people who work without being paid are disproportionately. I mean, and sometimes they are paid. Like a lot of times, like with Magic Cards, for example, it's a lot of professional players, right, who who get paid a certain amount out of the marketing budget uh, of the company that makes the cards to be the best at this game with the understanding that they will then tell other people about the game. They will also create these personages that other people will aspire to. They'll open stores. People will go to those stores. Those stores will sell more product. It becomes like a virtuous cycle of spreading the word about the game, and the company really doesn't have to spend that much money, right? If not, you make not, a game, yeah, not as much. Yeah. So like if you make a game that can't be robustly optimized, then people who are really into robust optimization aren't going to be interested in it. And they're going to lose interest in it fast. Uh, if the game's imbalanced, you know, if you're playing like what, Primal Rage or some some like why is Primal Rage so much worse off than like other fighting games and it has balance <laughs> problems, right? Um, and, Prim- I mean, Primal, part of it is- Primal Rage wasn't uh, how old is that game? 15 years? Yeah, 16? probably. I'm, I'm really digging. I'm really digging it. That's a deep cut. I probably shouldn't pull out anything so obvious or anything not so obvious. But anyway, like, you know, we can all talk about, you know, games that aren't balanced. And for the average player, it doesn't matter. Right, but but the average player gets a lot of their influence from what games they buy from people who aren't average players. So the gaming community, has, so the game designers have to both think about how do we serve the average player, um, and so thus we need to make it such that they can still get through the game without optimizing seriously and get that illusion of control that makes them feel like they can be the best even if they're not. And then we give them illusory rewards and achievements to tell them they're the best even when they're not. And then we create the sort of side architecture for the game like the the interior mathematics of the game that allows for this higher level of play right Right. and and so it's it's a big challenge i mean uh i mean when they're designing magic cards the people who they write these great columns about how they design the cards because it's a great exercise in in almost pure design because all it is is a piece of paper with words on it there's no like technology really involved um although the definition of technology there gets complicated but they talk about having three different target audiences right people who who uh who, are, who match up to three psychographics that are used across product marketing in different industries. Um, they refer to them as Timmy, Johnny, and Spike. Um, because they like to name them as card players. And one of them is like the person who wants to experience something, uh, the person who wants to um, create something, and the person who wants to prove something. Uh, and that's that's sort of how you define these psychographics. And these psychographics cut across product marketing. So it's like, well, I'm selling a pair of Skechers, right? Am I selling this to people who are trying to prove something? Like, probably not. Am I selling the people who want to experience something? Sure, I'm going to make the big posters with explosions and like, oh, you can be part of this lifestyle. And how about people who want to create something? Like, sure, I'll make them customizable. You know, so how do I how do I approach these different inter- inter- uh, experiences with my product? And, and so when you have a product that has variety um, in it, like a game that's really complex, you target certain parts of the game design to certain people. And I think that's where you get the gap of like the 20 billion healing potions that you don't really need and all the side quests that you see in modern games. And the idea that you can win the game without completing half of it um and that's because you're catering to the different audiences right pete those healing potions are important because that's when you just take your party off into a completely nonsensical uh non-important mission and it's getting all get attacked by wolves and just like feed your party healing potions and get attacked by wolves even more and you just because you're sadistic like that you just uh, get them trapped in that cycle and just see how much pain you can inflict on them and just keep bringing them back 
You don't have or to maybe like that it. was just me when I played RPGs. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm, all right, I'm going to shut up now. You guys. I thought you were continue. talking about your family life when it's like you, folks take you out to the woods, feed you. Uh, you sometimes, you? sometimes I can't distinguish between my family life and the RPGs <laughs> that I'm playing. I think that's a problem. All right, you guys continue. That says that says a lot like the red letter media reviews of, uh, of Star Wars. <laughs> oh, those are so. Which, awful. by the way, I mean to take us. I was to say I was going to take us on a tangent, but this is not really a tangent. A tangent implies there was a main topic we had to begin with, which there wasn't. Oh, come on. <laughs> don't show the strings. Don't show the strings that you know are what? moving don't the get all, Don't get all Jacques Derrida structure sign to play in the discourse of the human sciences. You know, there is no, you know, there is no center to the superstructure. There's just superstructure built on more superstructure without any center to it. Don't get all post-structuralist on me. Okay, Man, okay, if, okay. If okay. Built the Death Star, it would have been indestructible. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I, speaking of Red Letter Media, I hope everybody has seen the Star Wars Episode Three takedown uh, that he that he finally published recently. So obviously, those are familiar with this. I saw I saw a bit of it. Honestly, I I have a hard time investing. 140 minutes watching a critique of a 120 <laughs> oh, watched, minute movie. I watched the I, whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw the whole thing as well too. It was, <laughs> it was, it was. So for those of you who aren't familiar with this, Red Letter Media, he's the guy who did the infamous uh, 90 minute takedown of Star Wars Episode One. Basically, the review is almost as long as the movie itself. And once you get past the point of like, well, why is somebody reviewing a movie that's 10 years old, uh, a bad movie that was 10 years old? It's just sort of the the thorough, the, how thorough he goes down and, and just kind of painstakingly cuts uh d- d- takes down all the things that are weak I about like, the movie and explains them. Yeah, if if you have that question, like why you know, why would a guy spend, you know, what must have been years of his life pulling this together? You really belong on a different website. <laughs> we have, you know, we have 50,000 words on overthinking of it about Dragon Ball. And you know what? <laughs> they are really good. Like, oh, you know, come on. No, 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 seriously. <laughs> a lot of that stuff is really 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 good. Uh, I was thinking that we should publish a Dragon Ball book. <laughs> I need to write a lot. I didn't write an article in that series for like a year and change, so yeah. I don't think that that's coming out anytime soon. Um, but yeah, hey, one last thing to say about the red letter, this, the red letter media, and this, the Star Wars uh, prequel trilogy reviews is watch the last one, maybe in the last segment of the last of the Star Wars episode three one, because he sort of takes you on a like a thirty minute uh, film studies one hundred and one course about the language of film and how. Uh, camera angles and you know the, the way that you compose your characters in a shot um, and, and the way that you get to use motion in photography to denote uh, you know action and, and moving a story forward how those things are used in movies like well he uses Citizen Kane is kind of a ridiculous example but it's, it's a very illustrative example and how George Lucas kind of fails to do all these things in Star Wars Episode 3 because everything is shot in a green screen and he spends the entire movie uh, shooting from his comfy director's chair with two cameras. And he's basically incredibly lazy and devoid of any sort of real, uh, real creativity when it comes to the human storytelling as opposed to the ridiculous CGI spaceship blowing yeah. ass. I mean, my favorite parts of his reviews are not the parts where he's like, you know, QQing all over George Lucas, to use a gaming term, um, which is like, I think, crying. It's supposed to be like, I think, ASCII art for crying, I think. Uh, but, uh, but, but when he talks about principles like that, right? Like that, hey, you know, did you notice that these are all three-quarter angle shots or whatever, that, that just cuts back and forth to like angle, reverse angle, angle, reverse angle. Yeah. But my, my favorite one in this whole series is the one in episode one where he's like, I'm going to name a character from Star Wars. 
characters without telling me what the character looks like, or what the character does for a living, you know, explain to me who the character is. And he'll be like, Han Solo. I was like, oh, he's like rakish. He's like, he's like charming, but a little bad. Like, he's like attractive, but he's also kind of a guy's guy. And it's like, you know, Luke's, you know, was it uh, like Obi-Wan Kenobi? He's like, oh, he's like a mentor. And he's like kind of chill. And then it's like Qui-Gon Jinn. He's stoic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of awkward pauses. <laughs> yeah. like, not just Qui-Gon, but Obi-Wan and pretty much yeah. Queen Amadamala. And you're like, oh, I see what you're doing here. I see what you're doing here. Like, they have no characteristics. And this is the kind of stuff that wouldn't necessarily be obvious. I love that sort of stuff. I'm actually going to be doing some of that stuff for the post I'm writing for next week. Just talking about criticizing an individual, the shortcomings of an individual narrative in ways that point out things that you may not necessarily know are good rules of thumb for other narratives, right? So, like, you know, make sure that your characters have characteristics other than what they're wearing and, like, what they do for a living. Um, and make sure that you're, like, if you are a visual medium, that, you know, you consider the motion of human beings that who are the subject of your visual medium to be important. And, and, uh, oh, and to I, have to go, I have to go rewrite my slash fic. <laughs> Why that? Because it's all based on on what I'm wearing and what Ocelot, oh. <laughs> and what Ocelot Kirk is wearing. <laughs> Isn't that how American Psycho works? Like the book, like every time a character walks in, they they describe what the person is wearing yeah. first and foremost. Well, it's also, I mean, it's brilliant and it's really done brilliantly in in the film also, where he's like in that opening sequence where where he's talking about the mask, you know, the the like the facial scrub he uses and. Um, and things like this, yeah, I, uh, right? Like the the brand names of the products and the ingredients and the things like this and all the hohoba, right? Hohoba, that's a thing, isn't it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> saying yes keeps the conversation going. Saying no stalls. Let's keep good. Say yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Figure out figure out what quality you're trying to maximize. <laughs> um, not on this website. Uh, Hey, have you guys read the dragon tattoo books? The girl with the dragon tattoo, the girl who kicked the horn in its nest, and the girl who uh, played with fire? I've read two. I've read the first two, uh, dragon so tattoo when, and played with know, fire. Spoiler alert for those books. When, when the girl gets a, a, a fancy apartment somewhere in Sweden, um, well, uh, in Stockholm, in Sweden, she, there's, a, uh, there's an Ikea catalog's worth of information about the model names and, like, various sizes of uh, the furniture that she buys. And I thought that this was quite an odd thing to, uh, to occur in in the middle of a novel, I don't know what did you you. It's in the second book, John. So you would have come across that passage. I don't know what you thought of it when uh, when you got to it. Yeah, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of odd uh, there's a lot of odd occasional name dropping in there. There's there's bits of it in the first book, but it becomes it becomes a lot more prominent in the second book. And well, uh, to to be frank, I didn't think very good things of it. I thought it was a sign that the books needed another pass under the, uh, you know, under the the editor's pen, or maybe the editor needed to send it back for revision. But uh, regretfully, you know, Steve Larson uh, died uh, very suddenly with only three books and what I believe was supposed to be a ten book series finished. Yeah, that's what so they're this, there. so this is all we get. But. You know, the point of overthinking is, you know, not to be critical, but to take the author's intentions as the author's intentions and to interpret based on that. So based on that, I don't know, I'm kind of struggling here. Yeah, One of I'm, str- the, yeah what, I'm, str- I'm struggling too. That like, um, what was it a key to this character's personality? I mean, this is a character that had already been established. And admittedly, she's kind of an enigma and like the... Uh, 
it's you know I don't know the um, the epi- the thing unfolds like an episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit or something where where like re- repressed trauma from the past comes to light and that's the uh, it's like a Hitchcock movie right in that respect that like. Um, uh, the the story of the uh, the story of the books is the story of of kind of finding out what happened uh, to this to this woman who's the central character in it. But and so like everything in that sense is a reflection on the um, the kind of psychological makeup of this woman's character. But uh, I, you know I don't know that like she you know she bought several Sphinx off chairs and a table and several occasional tables. And uh, several plang armchairs. Um, uh, do you all well, have well, plang one, armchairs? There, it's a fine chair. Well, one of the, one of the things that is is clear from just the first book alone, and I know not everyone has read the trilogy, but I think at this point everyone in, the, in America, or at least everyone in Boston, has read the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, just, just the very first book. Just based on the number of people I see on the train reading it, still to this day, I, I think I think I can safely say everyone in Boston has read the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So I'm going yeah, to talk. About- maybe maybe every Red Sox fan, because I mean I haven't read it yet, but I'm <laughs> in a crazy minority that doesn't obey the rules apparently. <laughs> so. All right. Okay, so that so that's your so that's your uh, cross to bear, I guess. Ah, so but, you're the one. I'm the one guy. <laughs> I was the reading one. the Kite Runner instead. I read the Kite Runner ten times. <laughs> you're you're the one person preventing 100 percent market penetration of this one book <laughs> written by an author who's now dead. But yep. one of the things that's clear just from the little uh, just from the little epigrams that begin each section of. Uh, the first book, Girl Dragon Tattoo, is that the author cares very much about uh, sexual abuse of young women in uh, in Sweden. Now, you can debate whether or not, you know, creating the character of Elizabeth Sounder is necessarily the most positive response, because I think Elizabeth Sounder, the, the protagonist, is still sort of a is still sort of a, a cipher, not really a, a living human character and still sort of a, a little bit of a. I don't know, sex fantasy, given, you know, given how she's depicted and idealized. But in any case, it's very important to the author that, you know, in the face of all these girls in Sweden who are sexually abused, here's this one girl who, spoiler alert, while also being sexually abused at some point, is also able to A, strike back, B, get off the streets, and C, live this life of, you know, I guess relative opulence and consumer success. And listing all these these items that she's able to acquire, all all these furniture—it's not like it's it's furniture from Ethan Allen or something like that. It's it's IKEA, right? Is it is it specifically IKEA? Yeah, it's it's IKEA, and they're IKEA names. They're like really—you could go look up these things in the catalog. Have we considered the possibility it's just paid product placement? I don't think it's that. This guy was, you know, sort of anti-corporate, right? (laughs) Well, okay, here's one for you. I, I'm going to take this way back, but trust me, I'm perfectly serious with this reference. Anyone remember that terrible uh, mid-90s Bridget Fonda movie, Point of No Return? Yeah, was that a, was that a Femme Nikita movie? Or? Yeah, it was, it, was sort of, it was sort of an adaptation with the serial numbers fouled off of, of, La, of Luc Besson's La Femme Nikita. Yeah. And in it, you know, Bridget Fonda undergoes this secret government assassin training that is let loose on the world, and she has an apartment for herself, and she's lived it's apparently most of her life as a as a child on the street and doesn't really have any real world uh sense of how to act so the first thing she does is she goes to the grocery store and she buys i think like 20 cans of uh canned ravioli 
<laughs> and she's just absolutely and she's just stocking up on it. And she meets uh, some guy. I want to say Derma Mulroney or one of those other 90s pretty boy actors. And, you know, they talk and it's a meet cute in the grocery store. And then she ends up uh, inviting him over for dinner and, you know, they make out and yay romance. But the point is that, you know, not having, you know, never having had wealth and suddenly having it thrust upon her, her first instinct is to latch on to, you know, the most easily available consumer impulse that she can indulge. So it might be the case with with Elizabeth Salander that, you know, never having had a lot of money, uh, the first thing, you know, the first immediate sign of consumer success that she can reach is the Ikea catalog. You know what, that's that's um, that's very interesting. Uh, Ryan Sheely, who is, uh, you know, a fellow overthinker, though he doesn't write, he he podcasts on the These Effing Teenagers podcast. he talks about uh, living uh, briefly – he's you know, a coastal snob like all of us, I guess. But he lived brief- briefly uh, during graduate school in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, and um, he taught at a university there. And uh, he tells me of overhearing a conversation at a restaurant, you know, at an olive garden or something like that in St. Louis, Missouri. And, uh, and it was – kind of a sweet conversation in that it was a, a romantic conversation between a boyfriend and girlfriend or husband and wife or something like that. And uh, they were talking about their upcoming trip to New York City, right? And um, what, the, uh, what the man was saying to the woman was, oh, baby, when I take you to New York City, I'm, and yes, it, it is kind of like paternalistic and, and uh, sexist and, you know, may make you uncomfortable, but uh, get over it. Uh, here's the point. Um, when I take you to New York City, I'm going to take you to the Banana Republic, and I'm going to take you to <laughs> the Gap, and we're going to, you know, you know what I mean? Like, we're going to visit the Staples, you know? And, like, um, the, the idea, you know, the idea that at the, uh, at the upper ends of the social and economic ladder, it's just like here, but, a, you know, a slightly fancier version, but more. You know, it's, it's just like here, but more. Um, to bring this a little bit more into my wheelhouse, I once heard a professor uh, talking about Catholic theology. Um, and, uh, and they said that, you know, it's, it's a mistake theologically that a lot of uh, pop culture things make to think that, like, uh, heaven, you know, is just like the best moments of life. You know, Grandma always loved to bake cookies, and now I know that she's dead. She's baking cookies with Jesus, and uh, you know, <laughs> right? And like, what the pop song told me that heaven is a place on earth, and <laughs> their post pop songs are never wrong. Well, without wait, that's what a pop song told you about heaven. A pop song told me that, baby, you're all that I want. When I'm lying here in your arms, I find it hard to believe we're in heaven. Uh, uh, I, I just re- oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, you do yours. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say the pop song just reassured me that it, heaven wasn't too far away. <laughs> In fact, we're getting closer to it every day. Exactly. I don't need to be the king of the world as long as I'm the hero of this little girl, which is kind of creepy. No, actually, the most, I mean, the most theologically correct pop song, uh, I think, is Would You Know My Name If You Saw Me In Heaven, uh, right? Like, is, is, uh, is Tears in Heaven because, you know, the, the idea is that, like, it's a, you know, it's a different dimension, <laughs> right? Well, and, and that was actually, that was actually a pretty particular point of it's a particular point of actually judaic doctrine which is brought up in the new testament to trip up jesus you know that one of the pharisees poses him a or is it one of the sadducees i forget but poses poses him a question pharisees, like hey let's say, sadducees you nazi bastards <laughs> let, let's say a woman you know marries a guy 
he dies, and then she marries his brother, and then they all die right. in heaven. Who is she married to? So that brings up the the notion of you know losing your identity in heaven. So yeah, Eric Clapton was onto something. Especially if you know they had their life and they had their love, but something happened on the way to heaven, and. I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but I want you back. How many times can I say I'm sorry? Oh, how many times? Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Oh, man. I thought the most theologically accurate pop song was the one about him being a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. <laughs> it poses a question that it never answers. She never actually says, like, you know, this is what God would do if he were one of us. Is it, isn't that funny when well, there, not, there are I, songs? I mean, the that, question isn't really what would God do if he were one of us. It would be like, what would be the implications if God were one of us? You know what I mean? Right. Like, the, like the kind of yeah. metaphys- metaphysical implications. What if God were one of us? Uh, right. You know? Yeah. Which, yeah. So, imp- yeah. So, but it, so it seems God so is words seem, <laughs> it seems to imply that God isn't one of us while at the same time making the case that God is one of us, right? Like by creating this sort of vision that we're supposed to identify with, this like uh, this uh, this sort of character of the of God on the bus, being like we're supposed to sympathize with this. But at the same time, this isn't this is also being introduced as like a counterfactual, right? Like uh, although I do like the the uh, the use of the subjunctive, which is really nice because <laughs> you don't really get that so much anymore. Like what if God was one of us? Uh, <laughs> what well, if God not, were right? Like uh, in a hypothetical statement expressing that is meant to express a condition contrary to fact. Um, yeah. It, it really ought to be, what if God were one of us, right? Yeah, so we, that would be the subjunctive, right? So it doesn't use the subjunctive. The, so, the song says, what if God was one of us? Wait, I have to look this up. Now, now, it's, yeah. it's, so they don't use the subjunctive in the song. No, I think, that, I think that's right, that they don't use the subjunctive in the saying. song. And, that's, um, and that may Well, actually, F that. <laughs> no, 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 Pete. Like, what, <laughs> what, what John says is right, you know? Uh, here we try to we try to um, accept the the given facts of a word <laughs> of a work and construct a uh, <laughs> rationale, however tortured, uh, to, <laughs> to account for them. And and I think that you've actually what you've done is kind of Da Vinci coded uh, the lyrics <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. to uh, what if God was one of us because. Um, you know, uh, if it, a subjunctive expressing a that is to say a hypothetical expressing a condition contrary to fact uh, right. would would employ the subjunctive, uh, a hypothetical uh, expressing a condition that the um, that the author asserts is true uh, would not employ the subjunctives. I think so. Like, what if God was one of us? Uh, in a way, it's kind of an exercise in 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 question begging. But I think it's uh, I think she's she is kind of uh, covertly asserting that God is indeed one of us. Uh, and right by not using the subjunctive. Okay, by, yeah, by not yeah, using yeah. the subjunctive, and that it's a clever ruse that every um, uh, that every line begins with if you know that every every line yeah. is posed hypothetically. Well, then maybe you can answer where all the cowboys have gone because <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you know, there, it, it's actually part of the. Uh, uh, part of the animal, uh, the animal cruelty, anti-animal cruelty movement to save horses. The cowboys are all being ridden at the moment. Oh, by by like by naked people yes. as like a Photoshop thing or Photoshop thing. <laughs> Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they decided to save a horse and uh, and ride a cowboy. Ride a cowboy. There we go. And scene. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> 
Well, that's fine. Hey, guys, we've managed to get to the end of an hour of overthinking a podcast without bringing up a single one of the topics that were in our outline. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that that means that uh, we get to drink. That yeah. is uh, that is OTI podcast Yahtzee right there. <laughs> yeah, um, and anyone who's anyone who's listening, take a drink. <laughs> yeah, chug. Um, so we were going to talk about uh, romantic comedies. No, no, no! Don't, don't, oh, no. don't tell them what we're going to talk about. Save it for save the material for we're next week. Com- we're never coming back to this material. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. Can I say something quickly? Can I just say something quickly on the subject, please? Okay, so on the movies that I watched when I did my overthinking anniversary movie watching, I watched two movies that I didn't realize were really similar to each other in a lot of ways. And these are the Wolfgang Peterson Vol- Volca- movie. And- Volcano and Dante's Peak. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, these, deep Impact these, and these Armageddon. The, these, no. These were the movies Cold Steel and Wrong Side of the Law, which were um, Shannon Tweed. Uh, I'm just making up the names. Um they were romantic. They were steamy romances about cops who who couldn't follow the rules and got pulled into uh, worlds of dark intrigue. No, I watched Wolfgang Peterson's Enemy Mine, starring uh, Dennis Quaid and uh, Lou Gossett Jr. about like the um, the uh, human fighter, space fighter pilot who gets marooned on a deserted planet with a an, a member of the alien race against whom he is like a sworn arch enemy, and they have to like live together for years and go through the trials and tribulations of trying to function and survive together. It's like a very nice character relationship piece with music by the guy who did Lawrence of Arabia's music and really like very eighties, you know, very eighties sci fi and cheesy in certain ways, but really like heartfelt and some really interesting, cool dramatic scenes in it. Um, and then I watched right after that, I watched When Harry Met Sally, which is also about a human and an alien who are marooned in a strange land uh, <laughs> and continually have to decide how to survive together despite hating each other. No, it's um, it was just interesting because it was like because because Enemy Mine is a thin allegory for like race, religion and nationality. Right. Very not even really much of an allegory, but it's like but the guy is sort of a, the alien is sort of a Muslim. And this is in 1985 when Muslims were sort of Hakeem Olajuwon and not like uh, and like Gaddafi was primarily seen as an ally of communists. Right. Um and then so he's like part Muslim, part Native American in terms of his culture, part black. And then the, the Dennis Quaid guy is like full on white bread, um, you know, honky cracker, whatnot. I shouldn't be saying such words, but there you go. And uh, and so like it's this this racial nationality thing about how do you get along when you have this huge um, divide between you. Uh, and then when Harry Met Sally, unlike many other romantic comedies, um, really commits to the gulf that is exists between the two main characters in a, and like really stretches it out. Like it keeps it pretty quiet and low key and like doesn't fluff it up too much, but they're like for most of the movie, like they don't, they're not together. And like the movie isn't about them getting together really. Like it's more about um, the state of separation between the two of them throughout the entire movie. That sort of is seen as kind of like a plight of, of humanity. And then they do happen to get together. And that has a certain message that I won't get into because we're not going to talk about romantic comedies now, but like the, the sort of scenes that are interesting in the movie um, other than from a culinary aspect of like emotional satisfaction are the ones where you're showing why they don't get along. Right, and they're and you you know that they have they're good people and they have their best interests at heart and they have each other's best interests at heart, but like they sometimes they just don't get along and and that is was the parallel between the two movies that I thought was really interesting and caused me to get into a long political argument with a friend of mine the day after I watched both of them that I realized was because I had been saturating my mind with these ideas. So there's my thinking about uh, the that I was going to talk about on the topic and I was going to expand on that. We were going to spread it out to other romantic comedies and so, so on and so forth. Well, thanks, Pete. You've so, just ruined go. the podcast. No, I, I will come up with more stuff. I'm, I always come up with more stuff. I can't promise it's any good, but I'll keep coming up. 
stuff. <laughs> there's there's always more. <laughs> this is it's been like, three years. <laughs> we're like we're, it, it has. We're like uh, it's the opposite of the quantity in. We're like the uh, the quality in. We're like the quantity in. Where quantity <laughs> is job number one. Uh, you mean you mean like one of those William Gibson style coffin motels, like in Neuromancer, where you just stack people in in, in tens and thousands. Look, bullshit is not a zero-sum game, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. I don't know. Okay. All I know is I got all these killing potions, and I got to find some wolves <laughs> to start eating my family so I can feed them to me. <laughs> I know this forest where there's these tyrannosauruses that live, and if you fight them for three weeks for no reason, you'll get a specific outfit that you can then wear <laughs> that you don't need to finish the game. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Well, if you would like to get into a heated political discussion about uh, really about anything with us, <laughs> you can email us at podcast at overthinking it dot com uh, or call the voicemail at two zero three two eight five six four zero one. But don't do that. Only chumps do that because we never do a listener feedback episode. What you really should do is visit us on um, on the site and leave a comment on the show notes. But wait, what site? Why? It's the uh, it's the pooping in diapers all the time toddler of a web property www.overthinkingit.com the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it, it probably doesn't deserve it. Hey, for birthday next year, we got to like take a special test to see which kindergarten we get into. We're gonna have to do busing to increase our diversity. I think. Oh. <laughs> can, can we go to Can we go to Chuck E. Cheese for our birthday next year? Presuming there still is a Chuck E. Cheese in America somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we'll go to Chuck E. Cheese and someone will get shot. <laughs> no, it's more like we can take we can take the website to the Chuck E. Cheese. I don't know if we can get in because you know we're uh, adults and you know all that stuff. It might be a little. It might be a little creepy. Creepier than des- watching des- skins on MTV. Look, you know, you know what's you know what's crazy is that we had like decades of crazy ostentatious development of such like zany projects like these Dubai World things, and yet like the Chuck E. Cheeses were always around, you know, and like <laughs> <laughs> the Chuck E. Cheeses were always there. No, well, no, I, mean, I, what, I, I thought you were going with what sort of crazy ostentatious development the technology of animatronics was, and how that's <laughs> you know sort of become a dead end over the last. I don't know, a couple of years. There aren't a lot, not a lot of growth in the animatronics field. Mm. That's what you think. What a twist. I just opened my chest panel. <laughs> <laughs>